Geopolitics and Empire is joined by Chicken Little, better known as Doomberg of Doomberg.substack.com and on Twitter as uh, at Doomberg T. Welcome to Geopolitics and Empire, Mr. Chicken Little Doomberg. Yes, thank you so much. It's great to be here. So I was following Doomberg on Twitter uh, early on. Uh, when your egg hatched and you were let out of the chicken coop. Uh, and because of your excellent commentary and observations, your your Twitter account seemed to have, uh, it exploded, as did your Substack, which I think you rightfully switched from free to paid uh, not too long uh, ago. And maybe if you could, for the GNE audience, tell us a little bit uh, about how Mr. Chicken Little or Doomberg came about and, and you know how many of y'all are there. Yeah, we're, we're a very small team, um, just a few of us. And we, um, prior to Doomberg, ran a, a sort of bespoke consulting firm. Um, and our, our clientele was focused mostly on uh, sort of C-suite executives at publicly traded companies and wealthy family offices. We come from the commodity sector, um, former executives uh, in various finance and technology roles. Um, and, uh, you know, we, we had a good consulting business that we had launched, I guess, almost you know, just several years ago now. Uh, but then COVID hit. And like everybody else, you know, um, took a big chunk out of our business. Uh, but and publicly traded companies at the depth of the COVID crisis were cutting costs uh, as quickly as they could. And consulting is, is a comparatively easy variable cost to, to turn off. And so we lost a fair bit of business and, and had to reinvent ourselves. And um, with the advice of a, a pretty famous hedge fund manager that we knew, um, suggested that maybe we take a look at helping people who create content and, and sell it into Wall Street, maybe help them run their businesses better, which was a fascinating thing. Um, and we did that and, and we grew a very healthy business out of that. Um, and um, by the end of 2020 had sort of restored and then surpassed our, our previous best sort of monthly records for consulting. And a lot of our clients, you know, saw how much fun we were having helping with the content and, and, um, also, sometimes how frustrated we would get if our clients wouldn't follow all of our advice. And, and he had a, a great piece of advice for us, which was, you know, if you started and ran your own, you'd follow all of your own advice. Um, and uh, it was an interesting thought. And so we, um, in April, I guess, of 2021, we conceived of the Doomberg project. Um, we launched our first Substack on May 3rd of last year, which is virtually unreadable to us now. Uh, cringeworthy, you know, as we've gotten better over time, it, it's jarring to go back and read what we thought was a good piece back then. Um, and uh, started Twitter same week. And uh, like you say, it's been an incredible ride. And we've um, we've built what we're, a brand we're extraordinarily proud of. We've built um, a business that um, blesses us with personal sovereignty um, because now we can, you know, do what we love doing for a living and 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 make a living doing it. Um, and so that's been fantastic. It's truly a blessing. And uh, as you say, we went paid. We opened the paywall in April of this year after one year of writing for free. And we went fully behind the paywall um, in May. And um, it's been the correct decision. And it's been truly a, a humbling, uh, in, in, invigorating. Um, you know, if you can't enjoy your success in life, then why have it? And we've been very careful and very purposeful in our intent to enjoy the success that we've been able to create. A message from our sponsors. It seems we may be headed for the 1930s all over again. Financial collapse, tyranny, and world war. I've already secured multiple passports, offshore accounts, safe havens, and escaped to the sunnier shores of Mexico. My friend Mikkel Thorup of the Expat Money Show is hosting the Expat Money Summit with 30-plus experts that'll help you reclaim freedom in this fourth turning by moving your life and wealth offshore. 
Protect yourself and secure a new life abroad. Register now for free at expatmoneysummit.com or don't and enjoy surviving on insect protein while stuck in the metaverse. Since 2020, Ron Unz of Unz.com has argued the COVID outbreak was due to a U.S. biowarfare attack against China and Iran. Jeffrey Sachs, the Russian Ministry of Defense, and others are now making similar suggestions. Weeks before COVID appeared in Wuhan, a top U.S. biowarfare official ran the Crimson Contagion exercise on how to protect America against infection if a dangerous virus suddenly appeared in China. After COVID appeared in Wuhan, it jumped to Iran, infecting Iranian leadership only weeks after America had assassinated Iran's military commander. Iran publicly accused America of an illegal biowarfare attack and filed a complaint with the UN. Ron Unz has produced a free ebook and is available for interviews to further discuss this issue. And don't forget to fund Geopolitics and Empire. You can leave a donation, except on Patreon or PayPal, which have banned us, book a consultation, or become a member. No, good on you. It's awesome to see you succeed. And again, people should think of subscribing uh, to the Substack at Doomberg, uh, as well as becoming a Geopolitics uh, and Empire uh, member. I mean, I got an email today from a listener saying, you know, why don't you start a second uh, podcast in Spanish? Because I'm also a Mexican na national, speak Spanish. And I'm like, I had that plan. But it costs money and, you know, not, not enough money was coming in. So people just think they can consume content uh, for free and I will just eat tortillas uh, and beans. But that's not how it works. You know, you have to <laughs> put, put your money uh, where your mouth is. So, you know, think about that. Like, people listening, when, when you consume uh, content, think about the, the people creating uh, the stuff and, and all of the time that it takes. And maybe it, I, I, I like for my, when I have my guests on to get their big sort of take on what's going on and then we can drill down uh you know so I, I wanted to get your big macro take on the overall state of the economy i think it looks bad bad like you know in terms of 100 year storm sort of bad like 1930s type of thing um there's crazy 10 percent plus inflation that we're seeing in many nations across the planet and everything from food to energy to you name it housing problems uh, energy supply chains war right military conflicts social unrest historic debt bubbles uh, i mean you you know this stuff better than I do. And maybe if you could just give us sort of your uh, pulse on wh where we are right now. So when we started Doomberg, um, we had, uh, you know, the name, nobody's coming to Doomberg for the um, optimistic spin on things. You know, um, we, we spent a lot of time in the energy sector and in related um, heavy commodities, you know, the type of businesses that Wall Street forgets during boom times. And our fundamental thesis um, um, that sort of is a thread that, that you could pull on and, and work your way through almost all of our pieces is there's really only sort of two, well, everybody has their mental models for how the world works. We uh, heavily focused on energy. Um, and we believe um, before analyzing the macro picture, you have to answer the following very simple but critically important question. Is there an excess or, or deficiency in primary energy production? Um, and during periods of primary energy production excess, um, you can afford all manner of inefficiencies and mistakes because uh, ultimately energy is life. Energy is the foundational commodity. Um, energy is essential to the creation of elevated standards of living. Um, and when you have an abundance of cheap energy, um, the party is raging and everything is great. Um, then comes periods where you have chronic shortage of uh, primary energy, which we believe uh, we began to experience in the aftermath of the 
of COVID-19 pandemic and the associated government actions to um, shut down the economy in the hopes of containing the virus. Um, what we saw then was an end of a period of excess primary energy. Um, for the better part of 15 years prior to the COVID-19 lockdowns, um, the world benefited greatly from the marginal production of cheap oil and gas in the shell patch and, and we're, we're spending the dividends of the technologies behind horizontal drilling and fracking. Um, that's all come to a crashing stop uh, in the post-COVID world. And um, we are now in a situation where, um, given the price elasticity of demand for energy, we're playing whack-a-mole with crises all around the world, uh, which are all just sort of manifestations of the fundamental underlying answer to the question I started with, which is, is the world in a period of energy abundance or scarcity? Um, once you recognize that we're in a period of deep scarcity, some of it self-imposed, um, then the rest of the world makes sense, um, be it uh, the inflation that you referenced earlier or the relative strength and weaknesses of currencies. Um, no single variable explains uh, all of the um, all of the observations, but you know um, the R squared on energy is probably around seventy percent. I mean, it, it explains much of the variance that we observe. Um, the fact that we're in the scarcity of primary energy. And so um, all of the sort of things you're rattling off can be traced back to energy, war, inflation, contraction, civil unrest, food riots. Um, all of those things are basically just symptoms of the greater disease of a, of a period of energy scarcity. Yeah. And I, I, I would agree uh, with you. And from time to time, I interview folks like Gail uh, Tverberg, Steve St. Angelo. I recently had uh, a chatter with Art Berman, the petroleum geologist on my TNT radio program uh, last week. And there seem to be different schools of thought when it comes to energy, fossil fuels, you know, climate change. And um, I, I like the idea that oil is abiotic. But, you know, let's say there, there there's there's a school where uh, that say fossil fuels perhaps are declining, but we've got time to figure out a way forward. You know, th they'll be around for hundreds of years. Don't worry, we can use nuclear and figure things out. Then we have um, uh, a more middle approach where, you know, oil is peaking, uh, you know, let, let's do something about it. And then we've got the more like alarmist. You wrote about this the Malthusian, uh, I think, uh, article called Malthusian Malarchy. This more eugenicist sort of Malthusian view, which says, stop fossil fuels right now, switch to renewables, which, I mean, that's not going to work, and forget uh, nuclear. And, you know, this is going to lead to the impoverishment and death of millions, perhaps uh, billions. And so uh, your sort of view on, on you know, are we, how quickly are we, are we running out of oil um, and, you know, what are uh, alternatives? It's funny you mentioned abiotic. You're one of the first podcast hosts to... Um even in passing question the um, the underlying sort of fundamental hypothesis of how oil and gas were formed in the first place. Uh, not sure if you're familiar with a book by Thomas Gold, um, which is one of these books I, I read a couple of decades ago. You kind of, it's an interesting book. You Maybe you dismiss it, but you always have it in the back of your mind. And it's a book, I believe the title is called um, Deep, A Deep Hot Biosphere. So his thesis was that um, that uh, oil was is sort of premortal and then it, ha it is unconnected to life and in fact that life originated underground and only over time did it um, seep to the surface you know the un underlying hypothesis for oil is that it's degraded plants and animal stuff over time that sort of gets cooked uh, underground um, certainly i think um, there's very little evidence that certain grades of coal aren't in fact just decayed plants but um, his thesis was that oil 
Um, it was premortal and there's a giant amount of it underground. And uh, the only thing that limits our ability to tap it is human ingenuity. Um, I'm certainly not in the camp of uh, people who think that um, oil and gas is in decline. Um, I think the, the result of the shell patch uh, miracle um, in many ways shows that with enough money and ingenuity, um, there's a virtually limitless amount of oil and gas under the ground. Um, as evidence for this, you could witness the fact that there are huge um, uh, fracking potential in Europe and Canada and the UK and all over the world, really, that has not even begun to be tapped yet, mostly because of politics and this Malthusian malarkey that you referenced in that piece we wrote about. Um, now, whether we should be tapping those or should be focusing more on 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 nuclear power um, is a different argument. But I, we're, you know, the, the peak oil hypothesis and Herbert's peak um, really was a catastrophic thing um, for American foreign policy. You could trace um, a half a dozen major wars uh, because American leaders believed that they had forever tapped out uh, of America's potential to produce oil and gas. Um, it was only the, the shale revolution and the technologies and the hardworking engineers in the shale patch that proved that hypothesis wrong. Um, so, yeah, it, it's a fascinating question. What, what we might write about someday, you know, this book by Thomas Gold is a bit controversial, as you can imagine, because it, it um, in a very scientific way, tries to poke a hole at a leading theory. Um, but it's a really fascinating book if you've never read it. Yeah, and there there have been a few others, like people reference Russian scientists who talk about abiotic and uh, William Engdahl, author who I've interviewed, and uh, former CIA uh, Colonel uh, Fletcher Prouty, who's talked about this, uh, and and a few um, others. But you know, given the current juncture where where we're at, Europe seems to be turning out the lights, like it's in suicidal. Basically, they're just shutting off nuclear plants and uh, coal plans people are talking about a, a frozen uh winter the renewables most people i talk to say i mean the, the solar and wind stuff is just not it's not going to cut it and so uh you know going forward how do you see things well we've characterized the resolution of the western european energy crisis ahead of the winter of 2022 2023 as the single greatest political geopolitical event in our lifetimes um and it's going to unfold in the coming weeks just this morning as we're recording this um Natural gas, uh, Dutch TTF crossed $90 per million BTU, um, which is a staggering number. Um, to put that number into some context, that's the equivalent of um, more than $500 a barrel of oil on an energy content basis. Um, natural gas in the US at the peak of the shale boom, you couldn't give it away. It was trapped here. And natural gas was selling for less than $2 per million BTU. That same molecule uh, of methane um, is now selling for uh, $90 per million BTU, a 45-fold increase in one of the primary inputs at the very front end of our supply chain. And no manufacturing sector, no matter how robust or value-add, can withstand a 45x cost bump. Um, natural gas is critical. It's one of the most critical inputs in society. It, it can be burned to heat homes. It can be burned to produce electricity. It can be fed into um, reactors that produce ammonia and fertilizer, and it can be fed into reactors that um, you know produce all all manner of critical chemicals. Um, it, it's the input into cogeneration plants at uh, these Verbon sites where um, heat and electricity are, are in, in needed in order to transform um, other elements of the uh, barrel of oil into all of the things that we take for granted in the modern world. Um, this is a catastrophic event. We've been writing about it for over a year. 
Um, nobody would rather be more wrong than us. Um, you know, there's some some people on Twitter um, proclaiming that the people that have been calling this out are the ones hoping for it to happen. We have nothing of the sort. We've been trying to warn people for over a year, and it's frustrating to see our worst nightmares really come come forward. Nobody wants uh, economic suffering, um, and, and you know, th- but this is what's going to happen. It's really amazing to watch it. It it it's becoming difficult to reject the hypothesis that somehow this is all done on purpose um, because the level of stupidity on display staggers the mind. I, I definitely uh, would agree. And uh, as um, Bob Dylan wrote and Jimi Hendrix uh, saying in uh, all along the watchtower, something to the tune of, you know, the, the hour is late. Let us not talk. Uh, I know let's not mince words. Let's just get to the point And, <laughs> And, uh, you know, you've mentioned the collapse of the EU. I'm also a Croatian national. I'm speaking to you here from uh, the the EU. I'm not a fan at all of the EU. I view it as an anti-democratic, um, technocratic, fascist system. Soviet dissidents have called it the new European Soviet. And I would happy, I'd be happy to see the EU collapse. And there are some elite white papers, a few people talk about, uh, that go back a few years. I have to dig them up again, which were forecasting the collapse of the EU the disintegration, you know, by 2030, 2035. I don't know what uh, they have in mind, but uh, as well, we're starting to see social unrest. Sri Lanka, Sierra Leone, uh, 16 people were killed protesting cost of living, um, uh, in these cost of living protests. I call them the, uh, many people now, the Great Reset protests, right? Panama, uh, Malawi, South Africa. We're, we're seeing this spread now. Uh, and, you know, your, your further thoughts on this, I, I see, I think you guys have also mentioned in passing the World Economic Forum and, and Great Reset. And so I think this has to be intentional. Uh, and so m- maybe, you know, if, if you if we try to put ourselves in their shoes, what are they thinking? You know, why are they doing these things? Um, your thoughts there? So I would say I'm not yet convinced it's intentional because that is sort of a Pascal's wager type of bet. Like, I don't want to live in that world. Mm-hmm. where an elite cabal uh, gets together and destroy, decides to implement policies on purpose that result in the deaths of and potential starvation of hundreds of millions of humans. Um, I, I'm still hoping and holding out hope for the incompetence hypothesis. Um, but as you mentioned, um, because you know um, the price elasticity of demand for life is high, <laughs> the those who can afford to pay it are exporting inflation to the countries you've mentioned, you know, Peru and um, Pakistan, for example, you know, as, as hard as Germany and Western Europe is, is scrambling to fill their underground storage tanks for natural gas, all those incremental boats of LNG aren't going to countries like Pakistan and Sri Lanka who, who can't afford to pay them. Um, and so um, this is a really amazing, un- it's just staggering what's going on. And, and, and I, I do think it's mostly out of touch elitists who have no practical experience. You know, one of the things that differentiates the Doomberg team, we believe, is that the, there's lots of people who comment on the energy sector from the Wall Street side. Uh, there's lots of people who comment uh, on the energy sector from the academic side. Um, we have experience in both of those things, but also deep industry experience. And there's almost nobody writing about commodities who has spent you know, decades in the field because they're still in the field and uh, corporate PR limits what they can say and they have their stock options and their salary and they're just more than happy to ignore the noise and go about their business. Um, we have the advantage of speaking from the industrial perspective of being able to connect the dots quickly and say, 
wow, this price spike here is going to manifest downstream in these five value chains, and that's going to be the second order effect. And here's a third order effect to look out for. Um, and so I do believe, you know, look, take John Kerry, you know, um, climate czar uh, for the U.S. Um, we we we're not big fans of Mr. Kerry. Um, he speaks in platitudes and has no understanding of physics. Um, and we make fun of him in our pieces. Anytime we have a picture of him, we always caption under him said noted scientist John Kerry. Um, John Kerry flies around the world in his private jet and orders uh, struggling nations barely getting by to cut back on their primary energy use, um, to which I hope they all say, you first. Uh, it's just really remarkable. He's almost a caricature. Um, but I can't imagine that our, our leaders are doing this on purpose. I'm holding out hope for the incompetence hypothesis. Uh, but, you know, unfortunately, it's getting harder and harder to do so. You mentioned places like uh, Pakistan and, and Germany, maybe to get your further thoughts on going forward i mean we, we've got a a lot of uh, interesting commentators and I, I like to listen to everyone with an open mind that you know i've talked to peter schiff on the podcast who you know who says the dollars hyperinflation the dollar is going to collapse and then you know uh, mark uh, faber uh dr doom uh and a number of others and just going forward what sort of your if you if you guys extrapolate uh what might this some sort of crash look like going forward as well as in the different ge uh, geographies you know like the third world let's say pa pakistan uh, versus western europe us canada and 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 what the, the scope of this might look like i mean is is there some period of history you can uh, you guys over at Doomberg have compared it to or i mean just going forward what do you think life might look like so you know this is a fascinating topic and um uh, I wouldn't say that we're in the dollar inflationary, hyperinflationary camp. Um, I, Brett Santiago, uh, Brett Johnson of Santiago Funds on Twitter has this famous milkshake theory, um, in which he believes, you know, before the sort of collapse of the global system, the U.S. dollar will become more and more strong as people sort of scramble for the cleanest, dirty shirt in the closet. Um, we're probably closer to his views. Um, another thing to think about with the U.S. dollar that people forget is, um, if you limit the sort of denominator to the population of the United States, the amount of money printing going on is pretty staggering. But if you remember that the dollar is used uh, by an ever-growing number of people around the world and their need for liquidity is very powerful, um, if you put that population in the denominator, then the level of printing um, in the U.S. is a little bit, um, a little bit less uh, catastrophic, I would say. Um, and so, but I, I do believe that, you know, if, if just one way that we like to think about it, sort of if a trend, if a trend reverses, um, what were the initial sort of outcomes of the trend and will those reverse as well? So the past 40 years have been marked by decreasing interest rates, deflation, um, relative global peace, you know, with the exception of the concocted wars of the West. Um, and all of that is sort of coming undone now, you know, free trade was getting less and less um, difficult. Uh, the world was expanding uh, its free trade. It was protected by, you know, the U.S. Navy um, with the U.S. pulling back. Um, and, um, you know, we could see uh, a fracturing. Uh, we could see a, a, a two currency system, you know, watching very carefully what the BRICS are doing. Um, Brazil, Russia, India, China, uh, Saudi Arabia. Um, might they develop, you know, uh, a, more, a more cohesive way for them to transact you know you have countries with excess energy selling to countries with excess manufacturing capacity and if they can net net out the differences between them um, without having to go through the u.s dollar then they might have a, a semblance of, of independence and so if we have a 
going from a unipolar to a multipolar world, um, which is sort of the biggest trend that's that's unfolding, um, then I think you see the reverse of what we've seen in the last 40 years, which is higher interest rates, sustained inflation, reshoring of manufacturing. Um, and so those are sort of the big trends um, that we see, and, and, and time will tell, but it, it is truly, as you say, um, and as we started this conversation, as a result of energy scarcity, um, we're seeing these massive, um, these just tectonic plates type shifting in, in the macro picture, and it's incredibly difficult to model. And so I wouldn't be in the camp of an imminent demise of the U.S. dollar. Um, the euro is a whole different question. Yeah, there's so much there. You answered one of my, uh, you touched on one of my questions related to, well, the petrodollar. And then there's been talk of, uh, I've talked to Alistair McLeod of Gold Money. Uh, he's He talks a lot about the petro yuan and how uh, China set up a gold exchange. And, you know, the BRICS Plus have been talking lately about a new financial architecture. And I mean, Putin using the term, a new international reserve. And then we've got folks like James Rickards talking about, uh, you know, an IMF, SDR, basket of currency. I, and, and, you know, the BRICS Plus have also been talking about digital uh, currency. So, you know, a, any further thoughts on, you know, some of these ideas being thrown out? So the paper suppression of gold hypothesis would be put to a test if there did develop uh, a sort of secondary means of exchange uh, uh, with, you know, um, the ability to redeem your, your, uh, your fiat for physical, um, and um, I, I, it'll be a fascinating thing to see if such a um, competing, um, you know, uh, competing set of frameworks uh, pop up um, versus how it's done in London and, and New York today. Um, and there are many in the gold bug community who are hoping for such a circumstance because it is their belief that um, the price of gold is suppressed. Um, and that uh, you couldn't have two sets of gold prices where you could both, you know, stand for delivery and have those those price arbitrages persist. Um, and so I guess um, we shall see. Um, you know, it, it, the, sort of the person I follow most on this aspect of it is uh, Luke Roman. I'm not sure if you're familiar with his yeah, work. Um, yeah. And a big fan of his and, and, and pay to subscribe to his uh, tree rings. And I'm, I always look forward to reading it on Friday when, it, when he publishes it. And you know this this demise of the you know, sort of the the, the reserve currency uh, and the reserve asset are sort of two different things, right? And in Putin's view, and probably a view shared by nations that have either um, caught the ire or may someday catch the ire of the U.S., um, the U.S. and and Europe and their allies defaulted on their currency when they seized the Russians' reserves. That uh, we wrote a piece called uh, "On the Cusp of an Economic Singularity" that that covered. Our views on the event, it was basically a, the laws of economics have broken down and there's no way to predict what's going to happen on the other side. Um, it's a singularity. But this was a, a real shocking event. And if you're the Chinese, if you're, you know, pick your favorite, um, you're looking at this and you're saying to yourself, um, if, if Putin's reserves could be um, stolen, um, what stops the same set of, uh, of elite leaders from doing the same to me? And now it might not be it, it might not even it need not even be highly likely. It just needs to be a concern for there to be substantial shifts in behavior. And so uh, Groman envisions a world where, um, you know, the energy producers and the high value add manufacturing economies trade between themselves and settle up the difference with gold. Um, and in order for that to happen, in order for the reserve asset to be a sufficient value to buffer the 
sort of liquidity and and flows that are needed in such a scenario, um, the price of gold needs to be much, much, much higher. Um, much in the same way that the price of oil needed to be much higher in order for it to act as sort of the you know, the petrodollar regime that that um, that you referenced earlier, you know, and and um, as good as gold for oil was was um, was the dollar's objective for all those decades, you know, um, that the U.S. would manage the relative strength of its currency, um, keep its deficits in 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 charge, um, uh, in order to um, ensure the stability of the dollar as a reserve asset or their associated treasury bills. Um, and when we violated that uh, in a global financial crisis of 0809, when um, Bernanke clearly chose domestic political needs over international obligations, um, he, Luke, Luke Roman points to that event as the beginning of the series of events that have since unfolded that, that lead us to the situation we're in today, which is the potential development of a completely secondary system um, linked with gold uh, that would be fascinating to watch for sure. Yeah, like 10 years ago, I was more in that hyper alarmist, uh, accelerationist crowd. Uh, you know, when you're younger, you just, you know, Peter Schiff and all these people. And now I'm realizing you got to take a more measured <laughs> approach, kind of uh, what you're doing, because things aren't collapsing uh, as they have been talking about. And I think the American empire is perhaps more resilient than people think, uh, or these processes just take a much longer uh, period of time, as, as history has shown us, where, whether it's Roman Empire or whatnot. And you, you mentioned the Euro uh, collapse, just to get your thoughts on that. Uh, my country, Croatia, we're the most recent now, uh, I think in about, what, four or five months, we're going to lose, in my view, a, a large part of our national uh, sovereignty and identity by dropping our Croatian Kuna, and uh, in January, we're taking the euro and joining Schengen. And uh, it's always our luck, as we say, as soon as Croatia is joining the euro, the euro tanks. <laughs> this is like our luck all the time in history. Yeah. And so what's just how, how would this you know, if the if the euro collapses, I mean, that's like the EU collapses. What's the real possibility in, in your uh, evaluation of, of the euro collapsing and what that, you know, portends? You know, the betting against the existence of the euro has been a, a real widowmaker's trade for <laughs> geopolitical analysts for, you know, since the beginning, really. Um, it, the, the leadership of the European Union has shown that it's willing to do anything, break any law um, in order to um, ensure the success of what is predominantly a political project. Um, I would point you to a recent piece by uh, Sir Stephen Wilkinson and his excellent substack of the Pitchfork Papers. I think it's good and prosper.substack.com. Um, you know, it always does seem that we're on the edge of uh, sort of a fragmentation uh, of the EU, which is kind of ironic that um, Lagarde, the head of the European Central Bank, um, has unveiled a, a, a new policy tool called the anti-fragmentation uh, policy, which is, and nobody knows what it is yet, um, it feels kind of like a big bluff. Uh, but we shall see. Look, I think in the long run, um, that which cannot go on forever usually doesn't. You you can't keep going, um, printing your way uh, into um, trying to create energy from fiat. Um, Putin was handed the keys to Europe's energy future and was emboldened to act uh, in the Ukraine because he felt like he had all the leverage. Um, it's bearing out that he did, in fact, have a lot more leverage than Western leaders thought he did, especially when they um, 
put in the sanctions regime, which we have been saying has been flawed from the start. Um, and by the way, it is not uh, anti-patriotic to point out that our policy won't work and perhaps suggest a, a policy that would. It's the opposite, but we've caught a lot of heat for saying that the sanctions are only helping Putin uh, and enabling him. And I'm happy to explain why that is if you're interested. But, um, you know, that which can't go on forever usually doesn't. Um, the you know, the standard sort of spread between Italian tenure and German tenure is a sort of classic uh, dashboard indicator of depth of crisis. Um, perhaps they'll muddle along, uh, but uh, we shall see. It certainly, the project is at, at perhaps its most precarious moment, um, at least since the global financial crisis. But I would say um, perhaps even even more precarious than that. It, it's really uh, going to be a fascinating few few months. And and as we said, the resolution of the energy crisis going into the winter, I think, will be um, highly informative as as to how this will all play out. All right. Yeah, I, I wanted to jump to cryptos and Bitcoin. I'm pretty sure you follow the Concorda Substack and, and Twitter early on. Um, Concorda, I found him and you know we follow each other. He's a supreme crypto <laughs> skeptic. Um, I'm not a diehard skeptic, but I generally am skeptical of uh, cr crypto and Bitcoin. I think, uh, I think you uh, are, and maybe more from a technical or financial perspective, uh, myself more from a uh, let's say geopolitical or philosophical ideological perspective i sort of see crypto as uh, i'm more of the camp that there are uh intentional you know sinister uh agents uh pushing things they don't always get what they want but um i see sort of crypto uh, I, I view that elites have this plan to bring us into this cashless society and um they know people are opposed to a lot of their schemes and so they kind of try to trick us to to go along with some of these things and i could easily see bitcoin having been because you know we, we don't know where it came from it's kind of mysterious and as sort of like a globalist trojan horse where they wet the appetites of the citizenry around the world some people got really wealthy uh, and then that sort of bridges us into this cbdc cashless society you know all of this is still out in the open how it's going to play out um, but we're seeing the crypto sphere sort of seem to be collapsing. The prices, exchanges are going under. Governments are regulating crypto more strictly. What, what's just uh, the Doomberg take on crypto and uh, Bitcoin? Well, I would partition the two because we have different takes on them. Bitcoin and then the rest of crypto. Um, start with the rest of crypto. Um, I think, by and large, um, most of crypto is nothing but a giant grift. Um, patently illegal uh, trafficking of unregistered securities, um, fleecing of uh, retail uh, by corrupt exchanges who routinely front run their quote unquote clients, um, trade against them, uh, offer them excess leverage, uh, pilfer their fiat. Um, it's a giant fugazi of, of corruption and grift. Um, Bitcoin is just a piece of software um, that churns away on the internet. Um, it is designed for maximum decentralization. Um, the Bitcoin maximalists um, we've gotten to know some of them and tried to make friends with some of them and tried to learn from some of them. You know, we have a, a Doomberg Pro tier, um, which is sort of a monthly webinar in addition to our articles. Um, and we recently had Lynn Alden on to give a sort of a masterclass on Bitcoin and blockchain and, and crypto and, you know, the Lightning Network and mining and the future of Bitcoin. Um, I, we're, we too fear that the uh, end result of this project, whether intentional or opportunistic, uh, will be the launching of uh, central bank digital currencies, uh, which will be uh, undoubtedly the end of personal freedom. 
uh, that will be it. We will have slipped over the wall, waterfall um, uh, into totalitarianism um, and uh, look no further than um, the world's um, uh, most aspiring tyrant, uh, uh, Justin Trudeau, and his uh, outrageous behavior in Canada uh, for a view um, into what holds uh, in store for us in the future as um, as the uh, centralized uh, leaders and would-be tyrants get their hands on uh, a technology as powerful as, as central bank digital currencies. Yeah, I mean, uh, I've talked to Finnish. He does great work, Finnish um, economist Tuomas Malinen uh, on, on the podcast. And Richard Werner speaks out uh, about this and you know, get, get your further thoughts on this system because it seems to be most countries are now working on central bank digital currencies. And it's funny, the multi-world at uh, the Atlantic Council put out a CBDC tr uh, tracker. And if you look, it's interesting how the multipolar world seems to be most advanced in, in piloting uh, and researching uh, the CBDCs. China, of course, has uh, not an entirely functioning social credit system, but it's a, a budding social credit system. And this is, uh, you know, uh, given everything that we talk about, this is my biggest fear these days is uh, the coming of this social credit system to the rest of the world, uh, you know, the West. And I feel like the COVID digital passports were one backdoor to installing this and uh, people are being deplatformed. Like you mentioned, Canada, uh, I've been knocked off of Patreon, most recently PayPal. People are being put on no-fly lists. They haven't committed a crime, but even in the US, there are people on no-fly lists just because of thought crimes. Uh, and so we got a glimpse of it during the pandemic where you couldn't buy or sell uh, based on you know your medical status. In some countries like Philippines, if you were caught on the street and you were not uh, unvaccinated for a time, you could have been arrested and fined. And so um, going forward, I mean, this is pretty crazy. And you know, just your further thoughts on if this came to be, people talk about the Fed coin, you, you, there would be no need, Richard Werner talks about no need for uh, commercial banks, you just have there'd be just one bank, the central bank. You'd have an account with them, uh, and they could program your money, make it expire, tell you how you can spend it. If you didn't behave, they can just sh shut it off. Uh, and then, uh, even your thoughts on surviving in such a system, it, you know, I guess you'd have to go uh, live on a farm or something. Well, I don't know that you could escape it. Um, and so, uh, and and again, like you read stories out of Canada where they're um, creating a new sort of climate police and arming them and, you know, building these interrogation centers out in Winnipeg and showing up unannounced on farmers fields to uh, what the farmers think is trespass. Um, but, you know, of course, uh, late night last session um, before sort of dissolving parliament, uh, Trudeau passed and gave himself essentially these powers to to uh, in the name of, of uh, you know, climate control, um, basically eviscerate everybody's rights. Um, and so I don't know that you could live on a farm and get away from it. Ask the uh, the Dutch farmers how that strategy has worked out for them. Um, so in the end, I, it just, it's just, I don't think there's any escaping it. And this is why one of my main arguments against Bitcoin, which is the solution to a corrupt government is not a new currency. It's a new government. Um, and, and you know, the, the means by which new governments um, are, are entrusted with power is an interesting discussion. But um, that is the only sustainable path, which is to truly get through the upcoming fourth turning and to rebuild institutions with the uh, all of the lessons we should have known from decades ago, um, relearned, freshly relearned, 
and embed it into the design of whatever sort of government architecture is coming next. Um, because as you say, in China, I mean, the, the social credit, it's not social credit system, it's literally technology weaponized to control people. Um, and um, that never ends well. You know, if Orwell were around today to witness the technical capabilities of uh, of aspiring tyrants, um, he would be horrified uh, just at how accurate his rendition of such a society in his famous book, 1984, turned out to be. Yeah, and I, I agree with your uh, approach. I don't see uh, something as Bitcoin as being the solution. Uh, much better having uh, reforming uh, the government. And just on, on that note, any further thoughts? I mean, we mentioned some of these things like uh, social credit system coming to the West, but it just seems overall, uh, I've talked to Gregory Copley of this International Strategic Studies Association, who's said, and I agree with him, that democracy is dead now where it's it's uh, globally it's it's gone like globally it's there's no more democracy we're moving again into an authoritarian age and i just see many other indicators generally in the west uh where we're losing our freedoms and we're going uh autocratic uh totalitarian you know any further thoughts there well the one advantage we have um relative to the aspiring tyrants is that um we have the laws of physics which can't be denied and so, um, despite their best efforts, um, as we're finding out in Europe, um, stupidity will be overrun by physics and um, on the path from abundance to starvation is riot. And um, one of the things we expect and one of the things we fear is that there will be a, a massive sort of rightward tilt uh, in German politics and in European politics. And um, the consequences of that and the violence with which such uh rightward tilts will be fought by those who hold power today um could lead to some pretty hairy times um, but ultimately um physics will prevail and um the the people um, who may be working towards the type of society that you and i fear um don't seem to have a good grasp of it some good news there, some optimism. Uh, and uh, you, you mentioned Putin and sanctions uh, earlier. Just, you know, and, any further thoughts um, from Doomberg on on the geopolitical? Uh, we've got Ukraine uh, as well as Taiwan. It seems like, you know, the Pentagon, NATO are attempting to stir up the hornet's nest in the South China Sea. Uh, I mean, as we speak today, I was reading they're sending uh, the U.S. is sending another delegation to uh, Taiwan, uh, and then um, we've got the situation in Ukraine. For now, it seems to be somewhat stable, like a war of attrition. There is the fear that it, you know, expands into Moldova, Transnistria, Poland. You, I mean, you name it. Uh, even the threshold of of nuclear war. But uh, you know, any any further thoughts on geopolitics? Uh, again, luckily for for us, um, the performance of the Russian military has been rather underwhelming. Um, and so uh, I think we could rule out massive expansion um, beyond Ukraine because I don't believe absent nuclear weapons, uh, Putin has the technical capability to pull that off. Uh, we're not military experts, uh, but it would just seem, given the drawn out nature of the current relatively confined conflict, it's hard to imagine a multi-front war going much better. Um, but where we have failed and where Putin has benefited is from our uh, misunderstanding of commodity pricing and our awkward and clumsy implementation of a predestined to fail set of sanctions that have only lined Putin's pockets and enabled him to 
fund this war for longer than than perhaps uh, one would like. Um, I can't say that I fully understand what our strategy is uh, in Asia. Um, you know, the, anytime we see behavior that we can't understand in the slightest, we just assume we must be missing some important piece of information. I do know that the, you know, what you characterized as provocations are occurring at a critically important time for President Xi as he maneuvers himself into trying to become sort of dictator for life uh, in China ahead of the next Congress. Um, we shall see. There were rumors at one point that he was going to take a trip to Saudi Arabia. If that were to happen, that would be a monumental event. Um, and we would be very interested to see the difference in the way in which uh, Xi would be treated in Saudi Arabia versus the way Biden was treated on his most recent trip. Uh, it remains to be seen if Xi actually goes there. Um, but like you say, um, we sure seem to be having a lot of geopolitical conflict right now after a, a period of four or five years where we didn't have any. And, and it's uh, disturbing to watch. Um, I have many friends uh, in Asia and China in particular. Um, the governments don't represent the people, of course. Um, and um, and so it's kind of sad to see this all play out. And, and one hopes for peace. Um, certainly wouldn't want to see war break out in the Taiwan Strait. Uh, but um, with the military uh, response that China has imposed and with the continuing sort of uh, U.S. delegations flying into Taiwan um, doesn't seem like there's going to be a peaceful resolution to that uh, anytime soon. It's a difficult situation, of course. And the counter argument is having watched what China did in Hong Kong. You know, where do you draw the line? Um, so I, I don't know. It, it's I don't understand our strategy. Um, and when I, ha I have such a deep under misunderstanding of something, I just assume there must be an important piece of information I'm missing. No, I'd agree with you. I mean, a lot of us don't understand the strategy, and we're just trying to make sense of it. You mentioned uh, Russia's under underwhelming uh, performance. Interesting. Uh, it was just announced again today. Putin signed a decree to increase the Russian armed forces by one hundred and thirty-seven thousand. So maybe there's uh, something uh, to that, and uh, maybe to get your thoughts on uh, for people around the world. I mean, I, I get flooded. I consult with people. Uh, I get messages. I, I meet some of my listeners in different parts of the world. I've met some of them here in Croatia. I've met them in Mexico. Um, people are fleeing, for example, to Mexico, uh, and especially Canadians. Uh, and it's just fascinating to watch this. It feels like the 1930s where, uh, you know, J Jews who could foresee, could extrapolate a bit further uh, in the 1930s, they left uh germany and it really feels like that so many westerners fleeing to places like mexico or uh, uruguay paraguay uh, and such uh, or even here to croatia um which is like the mexico of the united states of europe you know the balkans the eastern eastern europe and so any thoughts on preparing for what seems to be a rough road ahead uh, common things just seem to be like getting into real physical assets uh of all sorts you know gold and silver precious metals maybe a little bit of bitcoin or crypto definitely like property rentals farmland uh, a lot of people are just getting out of the urban areas to rural uh areas you know just general thoughts uh along these lines yeah <clears throat> so for for me and and our families um, on the Doomberg team um preparedness starts at home uh, we could never imagine a world where we would flee um where we live um and um sort of my castle will be my, my, my last stand, you know, um, but we are, uh, uh, some would call uh, sort of preppers that uh, we would prefer the term. Uh, we have a responsible and preparedness mindset, you know, um, we take, you know, pride of ownership and, and, um, but we also um, keep a healthy supply of the 
disposable goods that are needed to effectively run our home. You know, we've we've written about this and spoken to it on a couple of podcasts, but we if you view your home as a factory and, and the product of that factory is the health and well-being of, of your family members, um, the what are the pro- what are the inputs and, and what are the outputs and how do you manage them and how much working capital do you have? And might it not be shrewd to keep a slight excess or even a pronounced access of certain critical um, raw materials that go into your factory, like food and water and medical supplies, um, alternatives to heating your home, um, alternative sources of power if the grid were to become unstable, um, cash, gold, um, silver, um, collectibles, um, things that would be useful to barter. You know, you don't have to be a hoarder and you don't have to have 15 years worth of food, but if you could have 60 to 90 days worth of um, supply that gets you through most crises where uh, that one could imagine. I say it takes takes all but the tail risk off the table and there's certain tail risks that just aren't worth living through. So um, that's sort of the healthy balance that we have. Um, but we would never be caught short, you know, um, if there's a supply chain crisis because the country runs out of diesel, we are going to make it a lot longer than most people um, because we have given some forethought to um the things we need to keep our home factories churning um and so that's the sort of that is the best way that we can find to have some peace with the chaos um and threats that are seemingly popping up every day um and um you know at least you did your best that's sort of our mindset yeah i also uh when people ask for advice i mean I'm a Mexican national and Croatian national, so I can, I, I've got multiple homes as well as an American. So <laughs> I've got multiple uh, castles, as you say. Um, but uh, I also advise people, maybe you want to think twice before uh, leaving. You know, people, have, I've had Canadians ask me about fleeing to Russia. They've got, they've got no connection to Russia. So I'm like, you might want to rethink that and just double down <laughs> in, in rural uh, Canada. And, you know, a, a, any other or final thoughts, maybe on the, on the US as well, Biden just announced student loan forgiveness i'm sure that'll have an inflationary uh, effect and it, it seems to be like the timing a convenient way to buy votes for the the midterms and you know uh, a- any other uh, thoughts for us yeah that when you combine that with the uh, million barrels a week that uh, a million barrels a day that are being released uh, from the strategic petroleum reserve which is scheduled to stop at the end of october you know just in time for getting through the midterms it's hard to not become cynical about the policy choices being made and um, whether or not these might have more to do with counting votes than um, helping constituents. And the the student loan forgiveness is a complex topic. It's not one that we've written about. Um, Ultimately, this is sort of papering over a symptom of a greater disease, which is the total corruption and bloated nature of the post-secondary education system in the United States, which is something we have written about um, in the early days of Doomberg. And, uh, you know, Ultimately, there would be no need for student loans if universities were better run. Um, and, you know, you could look and see the impoverishment of the uh, tens of millions of students who have been saddled with these loans is directly inversely proportional to the size of the endowments that these universities have been able to accumulate. Um, I think Harvard is over 50 billion. It's grotesque. It's obscene. Um, those endowments are literally built off the backs of the debt that has been uh, taken on by um by these students and it is a shame that it has come to the point where uh the 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 national treasury uh, the federal purse has been opened in order to bail out um what what is effectively a a corrupt and ineffective post-secondary education system in the united states i i'm torn on the topic because i don't i understand how the sort of the certification and signaling nature of getting a degree from a good school has become so important and the fear of missing out and 
parents prompting their children to go get such degrees um, as their one hope to get out of poverty and, and to be able to establish a good life for themselves. Um, to to saddle people with ten, twenty, thirty thousand dollars of student debt for a degree that um, ultimately will be N NPV negative for the consumer, uh, i.e., the student, um, is not right either. Uh, it doesn't feel like the right solution to the problem, but it is the one that's on offer, and so we shall see how it plays out. But un un it is undoubtedly true that this is uh, inflationary and um, and and suspiciously well timed uh, for the midterm elections here in November. I've met people with hundred thousand. Uh, dollar debt which is just mind uh numbing and where um you know where are the best places to find you and you know what can people expect to get from a doomberg substack subscription yeah you can find us at doomberg.substack.com um we publish uh six to eight articles a month um the articles are now all behind the paywall although the previews are still there if people go to our about about page um they have uh, access to a description of the product and links to several free samples of pieces that we wrote uh, before the paywall. Um, we comment uh, predominantly on energy, but also geopolitics, as you've heard here today, and and uh, a few sort of interesting financial stock situations that that catch our interest. Um, we're a very small team. We are 100% subscriber supported. Um, we accept no ads and no sponsorships, and which means there's no holding back. Um, our objective is to be provocative without being polarizing, to be funny uh, without being silly, and to teach without being self-indulgent. That's the brand ambition of Doomberg. Um, a monthly subscription is is $30, or you could um, preferably, in our case, um, pay up for the full year for a, a discount and, and only pay $300. There's also a pro tier, which is more directed towards institutional clients. Um, so yeah, doomberg.substat.com, and you can follow us on Twitter. We're active on Twitter every day. Twitter is sort of another variant of our free product and where we we post bite-sized original content um, every day um, with the hopes of luring people over to our Substack. Um, you can skip Twitter and go straight to the Substack. That'd be great. Uh, but listen, I've really appreciated the conversation. It's been, it's been fantastic. Yeah, and your your Twitter feed is one of my go-tos. A lot of uh, great uh, stuff uh, I get from there as well. And thank you for being on Geopolitics and Empire. It was a pleasure. Talk to you again. I hope you enjoyed this Geopolitics and Empire podcast. The website is geopoliticsandempire.com, and I encourage you to sign up for the free email list that goes out with each podcast and every weekend with a collection of news headlines. The newsletter and website are our last lines of defense. We're being censored and deplatformed. It's nearly impossible to find Geopolitics and Empire on the Google search engine. We've been blacklisted. YouTube frequently takes down our videos with strikes, Facebook restricts our page, Reddit and Twitter take down posts, and after the Associated Press mentioned Geopolitics and Empire in a 2021 article co-written with NATO, our Patreon account was terminated. Vimeo also terminated our Pro account. The best free way to help Geopolitics and Empire is to leave a review on Apple Podcasts or elsewhere and subscribe to all of our media channels. You can find the video broadcast now on five platforms, Odyssey, Rockfin, Rumble, BitChute, and Brighteon. You can find the audio broadcast on the podcast ecosystem, SoundCloud, Apple, Spotify, and so on. My current favorite social media channels are Twitter and Telegram, but you can also find us on Gab, MeWe, Minds, Float, VK, Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Finally, Geopolitics and Empire is in dire need of funding to continue. You can leave a donation 
purchase a consultation with the host, or become a member to receive additional benefits. We also produce a weekly broadcast called Dissident Thinker for members and Rockfin subscribers only. We will continue to fight the good fight come hell or high water. Thank you for listening.